IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as Wastelands and the Living Dead. Uh, my latest book is Brave New Worlds, uh, an anthology of dystopian fiction. And other recent books include The Way of the Wizard and The Living Dead 2. And I'm also the editor of the magazines Fantasy and Lightspeed. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. Uh, my short fiction appears in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. And my newest stories are Cats in Victory and Lightspeed, The Skullface City and The Living Dead 2, and Family Tree in the Way of the Wizard. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Orson Scott Card, author of the best-selling science fiction novels Ender's Game, Ender's Shadow, and Speaker for the Dead. He also writes contemporary fantasy, such as Magic Street and Enchantment, biblical novels, such as Rachel and Leah, and the American Frontier fantasy series The Tales of Alvin Maker, beginning with Seventh Son. He's also the publisher of the online science fiction magazine Intergalactic Medicine Show. So this is an interview that we recorded back in December. Um, as some of you may have heard, Orson Scott Card suffered a mild stroke on January 1st. An announcement on his website says, quote, He is now back home, retraining his brain so that the fingers of his left hand strike the keys he's aiming for. He will not be responding to most emails because his typing time must be devoted to finishing his fiction. But he is grateful for your good wishes, and he promises not to die with any series unfinished. For the foreseeable future, OSC will not make any public appearances or untake, undertake any travel. Since his speech is unimpaired, he will still conduct radio and recorded interviews, unquote. And so if you look at his blog on January 6th, um, he discusses his health in more detail. Uh, and so we certainly wish him the best and hope his recovery goes well. All right, so let's get on with our interview. Uh, okay, so we're here with Orson Scott Card. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. Uh, so first of all, just uh, tell us about your new book, The Lost Gate. What's it about? Uh, Lost Gate is uh, kind of the culmination of... of uh, one of my uh, long-time projects, one of my favorites, uh, which I finally realized would only work if I set it in contemporary America. So uh, what we have is uh, a remnant of the families of the gods, uh, all of the old Greek and uh, Roman and Norse and uh, Hindu, I mean, all the Indo-European gods are families that are still living here on Earth, but greatly weakened from what they used to be because... Uh, about 1,500 years ago, Loki, or at least the latest Loki, um, went around closing all of the gates that led from our world to the world that these gods came from. Now, this, the world that they come from was originally settled by humans as well. So this is the planet, uh, Earth is the planet where uh, human beings evolved. But the magic arose originally on the other world. And so the families that are stranded here are uh, severely diminished. They're unable to compete uh, with the powers of, of uh, science and technology. And so they kind of live almost in hiding, tweaking things here and there for their benefit, so that it's not as if there's no uh, magic left. It's just it's not what it used to be. So uh, into this family is uh, born a kid named Danny. Well, actually, not at the beginning of the novel. He's already uh, 14 years old, 15 years old, I think, when, when the novel begins. And Danny doesn't seem to have any magical ability, which we all know is a fantasy cliche. Oh, the child without magic. But uh, in this case, it's very dangerous because to not have magic could mean that, that you're Drekka, that you're not uh, uh, worth anything and that they don't have to take you seriously. But it might also mean that you are a gate mage. 
And ever since this terrible thing was done to everybody by uh, by Loki, uh, who then vanished, so they couldn't even punish him. Uh, ever since that happened, it's been a crime to be a gate mage uh, in this uh, among the families. And if you have a gate mage in your family, your duty is to kill them immediately. Uh, not only that, but this is especially the duty of the North family, which is the one that uh, Danny is born into, precisely because Loki was one of them. So uh, they bear a special burden of responsibility. They can't uh, fail on this. There have been wars between the families, and the Norse family lost. So uh, Annie is a peril to his family, or he's nothing. He's worthless. Either way, the family tradition is you just kill him just to make sure. If he doesn't have any magical, magical ability, you put him up on hammer to pill. So that's the situation Danny is in when he starts discovering his ability to make gates, to pass from one spot to another. At first, they're very sure. He doesn't even realize he's doing it. He's climbing a tree. But when he analyzes it, he realizes he couldn't possibly have reached one branch from the branch before. Uh, he must have made a little minuscule gate that bridged the distance for him. And when he makes that discovery, he realizes he can't stay here a moment longer. Somebody's going to see that he's done that. Uh, people can't detect gates easily, but that doesn't mean that they don't, uh, they can't extrapolate that they must be there. So Danny takes off, goes out into the big wide world at an age when usually kids really aren't competent to fend for themselves. The world is not geared toward helping uh, young kids along. At least not if they're not uh, under the tutelage of parents. So Danny makes friends, and some of them are good friends, and some of them are not so good. And uh, that's what the first book is about, except that Danny realizes much more of the history than anyone has ever taught him. Starts learning things from the Library of Congress, from the families, or rather from the uh, individual uh, magicians who are not of the families. The fun thing about this magic system is that... Uh, uh, it explains everything, and I mean literally everything. It accounts for the Judeo-Christian God. Uh, it accounts for, you know, and, and that includes, I shouldn't say just Judeo-Christian, the whole Semitic tradition, just like the Indo-European tradition, is a rival group that uses completely different principles of magic. Uh, so that the uh, uh, Canaanite gods, the uh, gods of, of Egypt and, and uh, Babylon and so forth, they are also in this, but they're the enemies of these Indo-European gods. And uh, then everything, you know, little tiny fairies, uh, golems, giants, um, you know, creatures of stone and creatures of water, werewolves, shape changers. Uh, there's simply no aspect of uh, magic that isn't accounted for, except vampires, because I hate vampires, so they don't exist <laughs> in this universe. Um, and so it's an everything explanation. Well, that imposes on me as a writer kind of a heavy expository burden. But uh, fortunately, I, I finally find this. That's what kept me uh, from writing this for years. But I finally have it. Uh, it, I, it works. You're immediately plunged into the magical universe. I hope people enjoy it as much as I do. And then at the same time, we have Danny pursuing uh, the reopening of the gates, the reawakening of the old power. Uh, this is dangerous to him, of course. But one of the particular dangers is not just that other families might uh, might want to kill him. It's that there is a gate thief, somebody who, whenever a gate mage does show up, uh, steps in, strips them of every speck of their power, uh, and leaves them essentially magically, permanently crippled. Uh, he has to face that creature, whoever it is, and uh, and win in order to accomplish anything. So that's where he goes. We, we actually know who that gate thief is, though the gate thief himself doesn't realize it. 
and that's a character who lives on the other world because half this novel, well not half, about a quarter of it, but in alternating chapters takes place uh, on the planet, on the world of Westhill. They call Earth Middleguard and, and uh, the other place is Westhill. And uh, so we follow a character named Wad who uh, has been living in a tree for a while. And I don't mean living in a tree like he has a tree house. I mean his body was inside the bark, progressing slowly upward through the bark uh, until finally he emerges with, with witnesses uh, and uh, starts coming into his own. So that's actually one of the most – that's the storyline that takes place in the world that I'm working with. And so I'm really excited and happy about that one because I'm having a lot of fun. That's That's the book that I always planned to write. Um, so you mentioned when you first got the idea for this book, uh, fantasy wasn't selling as well as science fiction, whereas these days the opposite is true. Um, why do you think there's been that change? It's uh, kind of, you know, an obvious reason. Uh, fantasy sucked back then, <laughs> the general rule. So it was hard to build up an audience for something as bad as most fantasy was. And why was it bad? Because the only thing anybody knew how to do was imitate Tolkien. So you <laughs> had sort of genre, which was... Uh, just, you know, oh, instead of a ring, one of your sword, man. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the the, uh, the series has gotten much better than that. He's a good writer. But the, at the beginning, you know, I, I started reading and I thought, good heavens, if I wanted to, you know, if I want this, I can reread Tolkien. He's, you know, it's still there. And so uh, I became quite cynical about it, and so did most people. Or we got kind of weird things, you know, Lord Dunsany or, or uh, other things that, that Lester Del Rey had dug up uh, or else Break the Camp had found. Uh, from the past, which was not written as, you know, it was, it was all pre-Tolkien, which means that it didn't take into account the wonderful things that Tolkien did for the genre. And so uh, people, you know, it's, it's like the same thing that happened with cyberpunk. Instead of learning the lesson of cyberpunk, the way that, that Bruce Sterling was trying to get people to understand it, which is invent a full universe yourself, come up with something new, and then extrapolate from it, find a rich, create a rich world. And then Sterling said, like William Gibson did in Neuromancer. So, and, and like Gibson had been doing in earlier stories. So what did everybody do? Instead of following Sterling's advice, instead of following Tolkien's example and inventing their own rich, beautiful world, they just used Gibson's world. And that was what cyberpunk was, was imitation Gibson. As a literary movement, it was one of the most pathetic ones ever to exist because um, it, it, it meant nothing. Nobody was creating anything of their own. But uh, other people uh, in fantasy began to learn Tolkien's real lesson, which was create a world so rich and so real that uh, people come out of it feeling like they can speak the language, uh, like they are one of the other creatures. And gradually, people began to, in essence, write fantasy the way science fiction was written, the way the best science fiction was written with full world creation. So you have your struggle with good and evil and your heroes and all of the stuff that is the, the standard of, actually used to be the standard of all of literature, all of storytelling. Because the realistic novel is just a mild, small subset of what literature usually is, which is what we now call fantasy. Uh, and this deep world creation, that's the English contribution to literature. You know, the French, uh, middle English Roman, middle French romances, early, uh, old French, all of the chansons, uh, you know, chansons de Volant and, and, uh, earlier works were so full of decoration, so full of spectacle and costumes and, you know, that stuff that slowed down the story but that would have built up marvelous pictures of strange new worlds to the listeners. Uh, the English threw all of that out, and they would take the French story, and what they would do is invent fascinating motives for the characters. It was all about motive. People talk about Shakespeare inventing character. But that's not true. Shakespeare was well within the English tradition. He just did it better than anybody else. And so uh, what, we, what we have in 
fantasy as it's done today, which is largely, I have to say, an American uh, writing tradition. The, the Brits are still doing their own thing, as they always have, and it's wonderful, but it's not the same thing we're doing. And so when you look at uh, something like uh, George Martin's uh, marvelous series, we are writing in that old English tradition of going for the realism, going for the nitty-gritty, uh, not spectacle, not marvels, so much as um, tangibleness of, of creation. You know, it used to drive me crazy in the era of bad fantasy that you'd have all these knights and warriors going around through a blighted, devastated land, and I go, okay, so what are you eating? Uh, how are you getting, you know, who's paying for your armor? How do you pay the guys who, who make it? Uh, and the answer was, they didn't have a clue, they didn't care. Um, but I started doing it, and I'm just hardly the only one. Uh, I got a book called The Lost Country Life and realized this is it. This is how fantasy should always be written. Because this was a book that takes you through a calendar year in uh, in a medieval, um, I, I don't even want to say village, at a medieval manor. And uh, through the year, uh, you, you see all the tasks that have to be performed, every bit of work that has to be done. And I realized, for one thing, this is worse than college. They had to learn way more than the average PhD knows, uh, which tells you something about the PhD. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the uh, the result was that the first book that I wrote after reading that was my rewrite of Hot Sleep, which was called The Worthing Chronicle. And if you look at that, you can see all of my homework, uh, unfortunately, but uh, I was just learning how to do it. And uh, the exciting thing for me was that uh, that I had – Things for these people to be doing before the cool stuff happened, while they were waiting for, uh, you know, the light interrupted, all of the all of the things that were occupying their time and attention, and it felt real to me. It was exciting. Well, everybody's doing that now, or at least the good ones are doing that now, and if they're doing it in fantasy, partly because science fiction is burned out. The the cutting edge of science now is in areas where it's hard to even imagine how you'd fictionalize it. What's your string theory story going to look like? Who's in it? Um, you know, how, you, we had a spate of stories about black holes, about cloning. All of those happened before we even had cloning, before we even uh, discovered the first actual black holes. And now what do we write about? You know, there, there's not much there. Every now and then there's a scientific concept. I still write science fiction from time to time, but I'm really still playing with the old tropes. The difference between science fiction and fantasy is trivial now. Um, it used to be huge, but now it's trivial because fantasy has become so much more like science fiction. And uh, science fiction kind of relies on science treated uh, rather like um, fantasy. Uh, you know, you black box your science so that you don't have to actually make sure that it would work. And so it becomes a kind of magic. Anytime you see anybody using faster than light travel or even relativistic time travel, we're not talking about anything that could happen in the real world. The energy required to get a spaceship up to 99.5% of the speed of light, which is where the relativistic effects start, it would take more energy than there is in the universe. It just can't be done. But uh, it's still fun to pretend that it can, because as soon as you say it can't be done, then, then you start hoping that the scientist is going to come along and say, aha, but perhaps it can. <laughs> uh, but as it stands right now, science fiction largely is fantasy. Uh, it is now openly what it always was, secretly, a subset of fantasy. Uh, so you're known for writing child characters that kids really relate to. Do you have any advice for writing child characters? I don't really write child characters or write human beings, but this is just a sad fact of life that uh, all the interesting things, all the interesting decisions about who a person is going to be or going to become 
usually take place uh, well before they're 20, usually before they're 15. I mean, if you track the life of Tolkien and Lewis, for example, which I do, I'm teaching a course uh, in their fiction this uh, this winter, and um, all the really interesting stuff, with the exception of, of the devastation of World War One, which is not trivial, but it's not formative, uh, took place when they were children. And if you don't read about their childhood, you have no hope of understanding how they produced and why they produced the things that they did. Now, that's true of any biography. Uh, if you don't know how they grew, then uh, how in the world are you going to make even a, a wild guess as to how their work was achieved? So when I'm writing fictional characters, in order to reach the interesting stuff, uh, I have to start in their childhood. I have to essentially write a biography, only unlike real biography, where childhood is the era when there is the least information, when we have the, the fewest sources, I get to make it all up. So I have absolute, complete, total access to the childhoods of my characters. That's a wonderful luxury. Now, with Ender's Game, the point was that these kids were children. So that truly was a story about children. But most of the time, I'm not writing about children. I'm writing about people who start as children. Formative things happen, and then they go on into their adult life. Uh, it becomes a biography then. Like Songmaster, he starts as a child, and those are his formative uh, incidents in his life. But before the novel ends, he becomes an adult. In fact, he becomes an old man. And that's how you see the fruition of all the things that happened in his childhood. That's how it all comes to mean something. And that's what I try to do with all my work. Uh, by the time we're done with the uh, the series that begins with The Lost Gate, and, you know, unlike Pathfinder, which is a trilogy, it will end in three, uh, I don't see Mither Mages ever ending. That is, I'm going to complete a major storyline, and I'm going to complete it in three volumes. Please, if Beth Meacham is listening to this, don't scream, don't cry. <laughs> I, I really am going to finish it in three. But uh, it's going to have room to go on forever. I can go back in time. I can go forward in time. This is a full, rich, real world that I'm working with. So I'm going to be writing Mithermaid stories for the rest of my life uh, and, and enjoying it more than almost anything else I do. So I move these people into adulthood, but here's the odd thing. You know, when I moved Ender into adulthood, you know, I skipped basically from the end of Ender's Game to uh, the beginning of Speaker for the Dead. 3,000 years had passed. In his own personal time, uh, he'd gotten to be about 35 or so. Uh, so he was a grown-up, but the readers missed it all. They missed all the stuff in between. And, you know, it left kind of a gap. It left a hole. Plus, people who'd fallen in love with the child found the man, and in the real world, too. You know, adults are kind of less likable and more boring than children as often as not. And so um, it didn't have the same, um, it didn't deliver the same reward to the reader that the original book did. Uh, can't help that. That's just the way things go when people grow up. But that's, you know, my uh, Alvin Maker series, Alvin starts as a child, but, uh, you know, before we get halfway through the series, he's definitely an adult. And it continues through his uh, adult his adult life. So you know, I don't write children. I as you know, that's not my goal. I write humans, and then if I happen to find that I can start when they're adults and still tell the story, I do. I didn't go back into childhood in, in Empire and Hidden Empire, but when I'm doing something like uh, the standalone novel Sarah uh, about the wife of Abraham in, in Genesis. Um, I start with her as a child and end with her as an old woman. It's a biography, and that's what I do. 
Uh, so you worked in theater for years before turning your hand to fiction. Uh, what were some of the lessons you learned doing that? Uh, the best thing about the theater is the best training. You know, people say, how should I train for uh, to become a writer? And for one thing, I say, don't become a writer, just write. And then you are a writer, and, and it's that simple. Uh, you may not be a good writer, but you'll be a writer. Then I also give them the advice that if you want to actually get better as a writer, best training in the world is to write plays. You get together a group of your friends, uh, give them your script, uh, have them read it aloud to you. They will butcher it. <laughs> I guarantee it. They will butcher it. I don't care how smart they are. I don't care how, care how talented. I don't care if they work in theater all the time. Any actor is going to butcher lines unless you are so good that you can write actor-proof lines. And that's how I learned, was actor-proofing my scripts. Uh, and it's not that actors are dumb. It's that if there is a way to read it oddly, somebody's going to find it. And actors are going to find the ways to, to misread your lines. I go to movies now, and I'm listening along, and I go, oh, no, the actor didn't get it. Oh, the director does not understand this scene. Now, I know how to hear it because I know what the uh, what the writer is doing with the language. But that's not what directors and, and actors are good at. Uh, that's not what they're even supposed to be good at. So what you have to do as a writer is learn how to make your prose, your dialogue, so clear that it cannot be misread. That's why I use a lot of italics to show which words in a sentence are emphasized so that you'll know how to read it. Because when you think about it, a fiction writer is still writing a script. But instead of it being interpreted by actors for a paying audience to come and, and see, um, it's being performed by the reader in his own head. And so you have to give that reader, who is not a professional, who's not a skilled actor, every help you can to read it clearly. Their cold reading has to be perfect in order to understand the play. That's really a hard project. Uh, not everybody can do that. But if you, uh, if that's what you're working to try to accomplish, Chances are you'll be able to write dialogue that your readers cannot misread. And if you do that, you're a good writer. It's that simple. If you can write in such a way that non-actors, which is what your readers all are, can uh, interpret it correctly, can catch the drift of what's going on, uh, and, and perform it correctly, clearly in their minds, you've made it. See, I, uh, I heard you say something about once about how the audience will never lie to you. Um, when well, you know, that's when you actually get it performed. That's not when you just have your friends reading it to you and giving you the misreadings. This is now where you start learning the, the structure of story, uh, how to put it together so that the thing works. Um, so when you're watching a play, uh, you know, after the play, everybody lies. You know, oh, it was wonderful. I loved it. Oh, you're so <laughs> talented. How do you do this? And, uh, you know, the, the more theatrical they are, the gushier they get. But none of it's worth it. You know, that's all crap. Uh, because that's just good manners. You know, in Hollywood, you're a genius means hello. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, what you have to do is you stand at the back of the theater and you watch the people watching your play. They will not lie to you. They will absolutely tell you the complete honest truth about what you've written because they vote with their butts. Um, sounds crude, but it's true. Uh, they shift in their seats. If things aren't working, uh, then the audience starts moving. They, if if uh, several people turn and talk to somebody near them at a moment, then that means you have you don't have the right stuff going on on stage. 
it's slowed down. They feel that they can direct their attention somewhere else without missing anything. Because even if you miss a line, even if something is mumbled or, you know, heaven knows that in, uh, was it Dark Knight, uh, the Batman thing, uh, uh, where so much of the dialogue was absolutely unhearable. It was so badly recorded and so badly, so overshadowed by, uh, uh, sound effects and score and so forth, um, that, that you could, could often not hear anything. You couldn't understand at all what was being said. But I never turned and asked anyone near me what was being said because I didn't dare. Too much was happening too fast and I cared about it. But, if I hadn't been that engaged, if I hadn't been that involved, then of course I would have turned to somebody and said, what did he say? What did he say? And then we would have been lost to the to the uh, scene for as long as it took me to find out the information I wanted to find out from the person next to me. That kind of thing. Or, or even coughing. You know, you think, well, they're coughing because they needed to cough. No. They needed to cough for 15 minutes. They only coughed when they realized they needed to cough. And they realized they needed to cough when uh, you lost their attention. So as a writer of scripts, when you're sitting there watching an audience watch your play being performed, if it's good, if the, if the actors are doing it as well as, as they should be doing it, no one should twitch through the entire time that the scene's going on. You know, when the curtain falls, then they can get up, they can stretch, they can move around, they can be shocked that they've sat there immobile for the last 25 minutes. But you you just don't ever want to lose them. Well, when I direct Shakespeare... I tend now to rewrite the scripts, not rewrite them away from Shakespeare. I keep them in Elizabethan English. I don't modernize them, except I take all the untranslatable jokes, the the jokes where the culture has changed so much or the language has changed so much that they're no longer puns, they're no longer funny, and I replace them with jokes that are still work within Elizabethan culture but are still comprehensible to a modern audience. That's the extent of my revision. But the result is that you're never lost. And I have my actors going lickety-split. They're not intoning Shakespeare. They're not <laughs> acting slowly so that people can understand every word. They're not performing it that way. That's tedious. It's dull. And you, when you watch people watch Shakespeare perform that way, the ones that are not already fallen on the floor in sleep uh, are constantly turning to each other and asking, what did he say? What did that mean? But And I don't care how energetic or, or brutal or whatever your, your production is. That's going to happen. But uh, in my plays, we take plays that are often cut down so that they can run in three or three and a half hours. They, they cut the script mercilessly, but it still takes three and a half hours to get through it. I give the entire script, every word, every scene, everything, no cuts whatsoever, in two hours and 15 minutes. And that's, that's my standard. We've done it with Taming of the Shrew. We've done it with Romeo and Juliet. We've done it with The Merchant of Venice. The audience is in stitches during all the comedy sections. Nobody remembers that Romeo and Juliet is a comedy for the first three acts, a hilarious comedy. They always play it as a tragedy from the start, which is just stupid. It's not even the way it's written. But uh, when you're doing those plays, I never lose that attention. I have no intermission. They sit there, as Shakespeare's audiences did. They stood there, in fact, uh, for two hours and 15 minutes, and then the play is done. Uh, and then they get up and they can't believe that it was only two hours and that it was that it was as long as two hours and fifteen minutes, because they didn't feel the need to twitch, they didn't feel the need to move. It was an exciting film production. Well, that's what a fiction writer has to do with a book, if you want to hold your audience. Now, of course, if your goal is to impress your audience with all of, all kinds of literary things, in other words, if you believe the crap you were taught in grad school, in your creative writing program, well, then you're reaching to a very different kind of audience, and you have a different kind of writing. It's meant to have every jewel-like sentence admired, and so, great, go for it. Uh, I hope
hope you have a wonderful career. You'll get Pulitzer's. I won't, uh, but I'll make money and you won't hmm. because I'll have readers. I'll have an audience. Uh, and you won't. You'll only have readers who are trying to figure out how you got your novel sold so they can sell their own. Uh, you're only writing to other writers or writers to be. Whereas when I write my fiction, I want to read, I want to write for volunteers. I want people who have no dream of writing, who didn't like English class, people who don't think they like to read, people who think they hate science fiction and fantasy. I want them to be so hooked and so held that I can take them into the world of my story and they don't want to leave. They love being there every minute. If I do that, then I've got something. I've, I've achieved something. And uh, and that's what being a playwright teaches you how to do, because no matter how arty you are, it's, the audience is not there to be impressed. They're there to be entertained. And if you don't entertain them, you're dead. Hmm. So in the afterword to The Lost Gate, you refer to your novel Magic Street as the book that I thought of as the best of my career so far. Uh, what's that book about, and uh, why do you think it's one of your best? Well. It, it was born from an idea that a friend of mine, uh, Roland Bernard Brown, who uh, lives in L.A. I've never actually met him face to face. I assume that there is some reason that he chooses to avoid that because I've been in L.A. a lot. But anyway, uh, he's African-American, but he grew up middle class in Los Angeles, which is a very different experience from growing up poor in Alabama or growing up uh, poor in uh, Detroit. So, uh, you know, that that was his background. But. He also was a great lover of uh, comics and of uh, hero stories, really. And he wrote to me and thanked me for having created as good a character as, as uh, Arthur Stewart and making no compromises about him being, you know, absolutely black, you know, none, none of the sort of fakes and fudges that you do to make it so that actually they, they function like white guys. Um, but he said he is still just a sidekick. You know, what I'm looking for, he said, is somebody to write uh, – a true black hero. I said, well, that can't be me. That has to be you that does that because to do that, you have to get inside black culture. And no matter what I do, I'm always going to be a white guy. You know, I, I was born white and I'm going to be white all my life. That's just the way biology works. And, uh, and so I said, you have to write it. He says, well, he said, no, you could do it because humans are humans. It's not like blacks are from a different species. Uh, so somebody could advise you on the culture said, okay, are you volunteering? And he said, yes. So and it's funny. I didn't actually need very much uh, advice, partly because um, I actually know kind of a lot of black people here in the South and, and uh, some good close friends who are. Uh, I know something about their experience. I've read a lot that's been written about differences between black and white culture in America by blacks and by whites. And so I, I wasn't ignorant of some of the issues. Plus, I'm human. And as he pointed out, Black people are as human as white people, and maybe more so. So um, so I started writing. Uh, he helped me in things like, well, what would people of a certain age in black culture be named? Because naming has gone in waves. You know, that there are things, there are names that would be believable for a um, 40-year-old black that would totally not be believable for a 20-year-old black. And so he gave me name lists, uh, just told me stories of his upbringing, of what it was like to live in a black neighborhood. Uh, I used all of the stuff that he gave me uh, as faithfully as I would if I were writing a science fiction novel set on another world, because to me, it, it was another world. And the result was um, that it's some of the best writing in my career, because I was really paying attention to the world creation and to the culture in a way that I'd kind of gotten a little lazy about. I, I hadn't been doing it uh, as I should have in recent years. And so uh, 
you know, not that anything I was doing was bad. I was just falling into ruts, if you know what I mean. And so uh, I finished the book. I was really proud of it. It went in directions that I never expected. I had no idea that when I started it, I was going to be writing a book that was in many ways about Shakespeare. Uh, I mean, how does that come up? Uh, but it did. And uh, I was just really proud and happy. But the proudest moment was when uh, my editor on, on the book uh, is married to a black man. I had no idea of that. and It wasn't relevant. But uh, she, as kind of an experiment, showed the book to her hu- husband, who had not been following my career at all. Um, he vaguely knew who I was, but that was it. And he read Magic Street, and he came back to her about it, said, wow, I never knew that Orson Scott Card was black. Well, that told me, not that I, you know, I'm not trying to fool anybody. My picture's on my books. Just he was reading an advanced reading copy, so the picture wasn't there. Um, The idea was that I made it feel authentic enough that he assumed that it could only have been written with a black man. Well, it couldn't have been written without the help of, uh, you know, an intelligent self-examining black man. It's not that Roland Bernard Brown just knew what, you know, he, he he is a smart guy. He's a writer himself, and uh, he knew the kinds of information that I would need to have in order to make this thing work, and gave it to me. So, that's one of the reasons I'm proud of it, but the main reason I'm proud of it, i got to say, is it's just one of the darn best stories I have ever come up with. The story of this kid who isn't really even a person in his own right and doesn't realize that. He's, he's grown up thinking he was a, he was a person, but he's really just one aspect of the king of the fairies uh, who's living imprisoned underground. And he was able to send forth essentially all of his virtue in this kid. He, this kid is the good side, and all that's left in the king of the fairies in Oberon is the bad side. And, uh, and, you know, obviously this means that the guy who's left down in the underworld as the king of the fairies is kind of an evil son of a bitch. So, uh, the, the, uh, storyline is, is about, uh, overcoming the king of the fairies. In other words, defeating the other aspect of my hero. And the only way to do that is to reconcile them. The only way to reconcile them is to rejoin them and end the independent existence of my hero. He essentially has to die in order to win. Uh, and that's the way it ends. It's a noble romantic tragedy. Um, it's it's one of the funniest things I have ever written. I am so proud of the moment when uh, a message that is written in fairyland shows up on an overpass over uh, Overland Avenue in, in uh, Los Angeles, and a and, uh, perfectly innocent word has turned into an obscenity. It's, it's lots of fun. Hmm. Um, it's, it's just fun to, to play with fairyland connecting with Los Angeles, which is such an unreal place hmm. uh, in so many ways. Um, I, I heard you say that the style of your early novel, Heart's Hope, suffers a bit from the influence of a grad school mentality. Could you give details about what... A, well, what... In a way, that's that's more joke than truth, because I actually know what's wrong with the book and why it doesn't sell as well as my other fiction. Uh, and it was a structural choice that was made. It's a mistake that I'll never make again, but it was a perfectly natural one at the time. What happened was that uh, I started the story in exactly the right place, uh, at the point where the character who was going to save the world gets involved in the project of trying to save it. Uh, I, that's the way I teach it now, uh, you know, teach how to find a beginning. And I, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely right. But I didn't know it then. And so uh, when I had finished the book, I had several people, including one uh, writing teacher who I love dearly, Francois Camoin, tell me, 
you know, what's missing is we really don't get to know the character of Enter Kelvin and Sensia Velvet, and we don't get to know, you know, a lot of these people remain mysterious. We, we really want to know more about them, which was true. Uh, though that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm supposed to tell you about them. It just means, wow, I'm glad that you care. But I was young and naive, and I thought, okay, they're right. So I inserted at the beginning three chapters before the story actually starts. What a terrible mistake. But none of us realized it was a mistake because everybody who read the new version with these new chapters at the beginning was already hooked on um, hooked on the story. They already cared about my, my character of Oren Scantips. And so even though they didn't get to his story until, uh, you know, 100 pages in or 80 pages in or however many it is, um, they didn't miss it because they already cared. As soon as it went out to an audience that hadn't read it in the correct original order, uh, it just didn't work. Uh, it couldn't work because I, I'd blown it. It was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, oh, oh, it's it, the C.S. Lewis with the Chronicles of Narnia. Some moron in the publishing company, and I say that in the nicest possible <laughs> way, some complete utter idiot who should have been fired for even suggesting the <clears throat> idea has republished the, the Chronicles of Narnia in the time order of the story. It is a vile thing to do. It's destructive of the work because what they take, do is take magician, the magician's nephew, which is the creation story of the world. So indeed, it is the earliest story in the, in the uh, series. But it was the sixth book. By the time we get to that, we love Aslan. We adore the few characters that, that remain. We enjoy finding out about the uncle because we already know him. We are, they already matter to us. But if we start with them, uh, Lewis didn't even write those to be the beginning point. He doesn't do any of the things you do to help introduce characters, to introduce the world. So you're actually plunged into the a late part of a story that's been going on for a long time, and it's boring. It's a terrible beginning point. Uh, and Lewis himself, if he didn't want it in that order, he lived long enough to put it in that order. He could have done it. He chose not to. And so I, you know, I'm teaching a class in, in uh, Tolkien and Lewis this, this winter, and I am forbidding my students to read it in that order. Uh, because it's so subversive of, of anything that, that uh, Lewis had in mind. Just an evil thing to do. I have, and, and, and so that's what I did to myself with, with Heart's Hope, uh, which is really, you know, if I say that that person was stupid and should have been fired, well, yes, I should have been fired as the author of Heart's Hope because I was incompetent. But I didn't know it. I hadn't learned it at the time, and now I do. Um, every now and then I toy with the idea of, cutting those things out or moving them to the, to be an appendix at the end. Uh, but then there would still be some flaws that remained. And one of them is that I have a Lady or the Tiger ending, uh, which is a really bad idea uh, for a full-length novel where you invest that much time in it. I don't actually tell you how it ends. And that's a bad thing. So, And that's a very arty choice. You know, that's, a, that's a, a, an inception choice, <laughs> uh, which was really... A good movie spoiled by that kind of idiocy. So, you know, uh, these things happen. People make their choices. Uh, the audience pays for them. Um, in my case, the writer paid for the, the choice to uh, uh, blow it on the, the order of, of Heart Soap. Um, okay, so back in 2005, you launched an online magazine called Intergalactic Medicine Show. Why did you decide to start your own magazine, and what have been some of your goals for it? 
Well, I wanted to start it partly because um, the magazines that remained, they were all shrinking like crazy, except Analog. Analog does hard SF, but Asimov's and FNSF both tended more and more to be doing edgy fiction in the sense that, you know, edgy doesn't actually mean that you're innovative anymore. It means that you're doing the same old thing, but the particular same old thing that you're doing is to be literary, arty, or anti-middle-class culture. And, you know, the hero stories that I think are the heart of, of all storytelling, the reason people turn to stories in the first place, uh, was being ignored. And so I thought the falling circulation here has as much to do with the kinds of stories we're telling or not telling as it does with... Uh, you know, the, the fact that, that the internet maybe or, or television or something is killing the short story. I think the short story is being murdered. And so uh, what I wanted to do was to create a magazine that would go back to some of the, uh, I don't want to say old values, but, but go back toward the kind of fiction that most fiction readers first fell in love with. Uh, now I meant to edit it myself, but it takes concentration of a kind that I can't get while I'm writing or while I'm trying to write. So I would find myself unable to write because I needed to edit the magazine. I had a backlog of stories piling up, but unable to edit the stories because, doggone it, I had to write this thing. So I was doing neither. played a lot of Civilization at the time. <laughs> and uh, and so I found another editor. Uh, Ed does a great, great job. He, he shares, while not always my, you know, I don't always agree with his choices as being exactly what I would have chosen, that's what you get when you, you hire an editor to do the job. You have to let him do his job. And so what I've come to, to find is that I trust his sensibility. He sometimes doesn't like stories that I love, but he never loves a story that I hate. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, so, that, so that I'm very proud and happy with the magazine. Now, the funny thing is that almost as soon as I started mine, and maybe some of them even predated it, I was simply unaware of them, uh, Publishers started publishing their own online magazines. You know, Bain did it first, and, uh, and then Tor did it, and several others. Uh, and they used writers from their stable, and they thought, we'll use this as a loss leader to help promote our, our line. But they quickly discovered uh, that it wouldn't make any money for them, that it wouldn't even necessarily bring them new readers. Uh, it wasn't doing any of the jobs they thought it would do. And so most of them have now stopped, and here I still am, losing money just like I always have, but not a lot of money, um, and we have readers, we have readers who care, and we're finding ways uh, or that we can or that we hope we can use to uh, increase the readership and to, to eventually make the, uh, the magazine profitable. But for those who do read it, I think we're delivering a first-rate experience with fiction. And, and what I, one of the things I love is that I figure it's worth the money to do it right, which means even though I'm losing money, I'll lose even more money because I insist on having every issue fully illustrated. Every story has an illustration. And I, I love good uh, science fiction and fantasy art. I uh, have all kinds of it as, as a wallpaper on my computer, and, and uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it can be wonderful when it's done well. And I'm not talking about the big boob art of Rosetta, and, you know, I find that tedious and adolescent. No offense to them. They're doing a long-time tradition, and they didn't invent it. But uh, I'm bored with it. I grew up ha up past that. Um, you know, it's Sears catalog level of, of uh, art. And, uh, yeah. So um, we try to, to have good resourceful art. Do we always succeed? No. But I feel like we should be a place where, where good artists can do uh, exciting work, and as well as good fiction writers. 
what I'm happy with about the magazine is that our readership is increasing um, and that uh, we're discovering writers who, who then go on to uh, to write novels, which is how you actually make a living. Um, but we, we have given writers their first or or one of their early uh, experiences with publication and helped draw the eyes of, of uh, book editors. And that's our job. That's what we exist for. So at least for now, it's uh, it's worth it to me to spend the money that I spend um, on an unprofitable, but I think good for the whole field venture. Uh, so you've also recently been doing some work in comics. Uh, what's that been like? You know, that was a complete accident. I don't actually like comics. Uh, I don't like superhero comics. When I was a kid, I did like a few of the Superboy comics. That was it for superheroes for me. All the others I just found boring. Uh, what I, cause, cause when I say I believe in hero fiction, I don't mean superhero fiction. I mean hero fiction. Um, and the costumes were all, just always looked stupid to me. I thought, why would he wear that? I wouldn't wear that. Nobody would wear that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, of all of them, well, the comics that I did like, Scrooge McDuck, Huey Dewey and Louie, I loved that. I loved uh, the Chipmunks, you know, Chip and Dale uh, and Donald Duck. They were funny. Um, and I liked Classics Illustrated. Uh, until just a year ago, I had never read David Copperfield because I'd read the, the Classics Illustrated version. So why did I need to copy through grad school? But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, anybody who thinks you know, Comics Illustrated really does help you on the graduate record exam, but that's okay. It's different, different. Anyway, um, so Marvel approached me. Uh, one editor contacted me and said, would you be interested? I said, well, you know, the form, you know, the graphic, the illustrated story, sort of drama in freeze frame, really fascinates because it's like writing a play, only you can draw anything, so you don't have to have the expense of building a set. Uh, I, I'd love to do it, but I don't know of anything within the Marvel Universe. I, I, I don't have the time in my life to go back and read and read and read, so I'm really immersed in an existing universe. And uh, Nick understood that as a limitation, but about every three months, not often enough to be annoying, but often enough to keep it uh, at the top of my pile, my mental pile, uh, he would call me up or email me, as actually he would email me, and say, um, well, have you had any ideas about something you might do with us in a, in a comic book format? Uh, of course, I realize how this annoying this would be to people who have been dying to break into comics. They're going, and here's Card. Oh, they're asking him. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I earned the right to get that by writing Ender's Game and a bunch of other stuff. And, and 25 years later, then they come to me and start asking me. So you write Ender's Game too, and then 25 years later, they'll ask you. That's one of the ways you can get into writing comics. Um, but uh, he then came to me with Iron Man. And I had to, when I found out, I'd never seen an Iron Man comic in my life, but when I found out uh, what Iron Man was, what I said to him was, Nick, this is, you know, I, I already don't like superhero comics, but this is the single stupidest <laughs> idea I have ever seen. Uh, I can't believe that anybody would ever read this comic because it's, you know, the guy is a drunk, uh, a playboy runs a multinational corporation, which, by the way, is a full-time job. Uh, he is an inventor, world-class inventor. Okay, so he's Thomas Edison and Bill Gates and um, Hugh Hefner, and he wears the suit. Okay, come on. How does he even find time in the day to do this stuff? Uh, and and who – that the kind of person who becomes – a world-class inventor, generally speaking, doesn't need to wear the suit, you know, uh, or at least 
you know, once he starts drinking and, and becoming the total playboy guy, uh, he's no longer functioning in some of these other roles. So then Nick says, ah, but that's the beauty of it. We want you to write the ultimate, in the ultimate series, uh, about, uh, this character. And so that means basically you reboot, you start over as if none of the other stuff even existed. And I said, okay, so I can invent the character who would actually need to wear a suit and be smart enough to do all of this stuff and be able to run a multinational corporation and would have a reason to drink. And he said, yeah, you can, you could, we'd love it if you, if you found a whole new, new storyline to, to make that happen. So I did. Now I was expecting the diehard fans of Iron Man to just scream, to just hate everything that I did. But instead they were very generous and open-minded and, and some people liked it. And so it makes me feel really good. I, I'm very proud of my work on that series. And as long as, as I didn't actually get death threats, uh, from <laughs> the diehard fans, I felt like I, I felt like I did a pretty good job. Uh, but that didn't make me a fan of superhero comics. I'm still not. Uh, I, you know, I go to the movies and if they make them feel real, like the uh, latest round of Batman stuff, uh, then great. I'm, I'm along for the ride. But if they're empty and stupid, like the Superman reboot that they tried, hmm. um, then I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't care. I don't walk into the theater going, X-Men, cool. I walk into the theater going, X-Men, oh, please don't wear the suits. And they didn't, bless their hearts. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, I'm still, I still have a love-hate relationship in terms of the existing superhero comics, but I'm really thrilled with what Marvel has been doing with my, uh, my books, literary adaptations. Of course, those don't sell like superhero comics, and nobody expects them to, fortunately, or else uh, they would have written me off as a failure long ago with these books, but they're doing very well for the kind of book they are, for, for being literary adaptations. And, uh, so nobody's complaining. They've earned out the advances and, and, uh, uh, it's working pretty well. But what I'm really thrilled with is Christopher Yost, for example, who did the original, the, uh, initial scripting for the Ender's Game series. Far and away, he has done the best job of adapting Ender's Game to another medium that anyone has ever done. Far better. I mean, parsecs better <laughs> than, uh, than any of the movie scripts, uh, including mine. You know, if he had a reputation as a as a screenplay writer, I could probably sell somebody on having him do the screenplay. Even so, he's still my fallback. I'm still hoping that that if we can't get a good script any other way, uh, that I can talk somebody into letting him write it, uh, the Ender's Game movie. But um, the, the fact is that right now we have an excellent plan for the screenplay. We have a terrific writer doing it. So it'll probably work out, and it won't be Chris Yost's gig. But in the meantime, his uh, his comic adaptation stands as being absolutely wonderful. He gets it. Uh, the story of Ender's Game is actually there uh, in those pages, which makes me very happy and proud. The art's been terrific. We've got wonderful artists working on the series. Um, my longtime collaborator, Aaron Johnston, and I are, you know, after Aaron wrote some of the scripts for, for various Ender books, is now, we're now writing together the, uh, the scripts for the uh, uh, Formic Wars material, which begin as comics. And then the novel adaptations are coming out after. So I'm kind of committed to, to using comics to develop some of my stories, though I'm not going to be writing very many scripts myself directly for the very good reason that it takes me every bit as long to write a comic book as to write a novella. And uh, two of those, that's a novel. And so if I wrote a lot of comics, if I kept writing five comic, five book comic arcs, um, I, I would end up 
destroying my career as a fiction writer. And my fiction makes me about 75 to 80 times as much money. I got to <laughs> do this first. So uh, what's the status of the film projects? Um, the movie's still alive. We have Gavin Hood directing. Uh, that sp- still was supposed to be a secret, but somebody spilled the beans. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, somebody leaked it. Once it's leaked, it's leaked, so I don't have to pretend I don't know. Well, I never pretended I didn't know. I just admitted that I couldn't talk about it. Um, but now I suppose I can because everybody knows. So Gavin's doing it, and um, he has a military background. He, he was in the South African military, a uh, little known fact, and learned a lot about command while he was doing it. Uh, he has worked well with children in the past because that's vital. You've got to be able to get good performances out of children or you can't do Ender's Game. And so I'm very optimistic that when it's made, it'll be made really well. It'll be a good movie. That's sort of my bottom line, you know, is that I, I wanted not to suck. I'm only going to get one shot at this, you know. I'm, I don't get a lot of chances to have Ender's Game made as a movie. So the only power I have is to try to keep it from getting made until we're ready to do it right. And I've done that, but I think we're now ready to do it right. Uh, how about some of your other, I heard like there was going to be a Dog Walker movie, and are there others? We've been working on it, but, you know, nobody will fund me on anything until they see how Ender's Game does. Hmm. But Ender's Game is actually one of my very hardest books to adapt. It all takes place inside Ender's head. And inside the head is where movies cannot go. Uh, they are a superficial medium. You can only tell what can be seen. And so it's just, you know, devilishly hard because I have things that are much more filmable. I mean, Enchantment would make a brilliant movie. Well, we were right to the point on that one. We had a first, an A-list actress in the lead. Uh, we had a terrific screenwriter. Uh, we had the right plan for it. We had a producer who, well, she, she was producer on Shrek. Um, it was not going to be an animated uh, film, though. Live-action film. And we were right to the point. And then Disney's Enchanted came out. And everybody panicked. Oh, no, this is too similar. Well, it's not similar at all. But it had Enchant. Right? <laughs> And suddenly the project died because everybody in Hollywood is superstitious. And, you know, oh, this will give it the evil eye. You know, it's, it's basically the attitude that, that you see. Um, things get close. Right now we're very, very close to getting funding together to do my album maker series. Mm. And, um, frankly, I'd, I'd almost rather see that than Ender's Game. It's much more filmable. And it's a, it's a really effective story and close to my heart. So we'll see what gets made first. Uh, you know, I, the truth is, though, the, the irony is, that I really disapprove of the fact that in American culture we regard movies as the highest art form. You know, if, if a story is really good, if we're really moved by something, we go, oh, they got to make a movie of it. As if we were saying, they have to make it come real, because the movie makes it real. And I'm thinking, I've already given you the book, which is far more complete, has far more greater depth. Movies cannot even touch novels for the depth that you can achieve, for the power, the emotional power of the creation. And if you want to have it so that you don't have to be looking at a page while you're doing it, well, then listen to the audiobook. That's the best way to experience literature anyway, is having somebody else read it to you. But uh, that's the way the culture is, so everybody expects it to be a good movie. At least I can do this. When I make deals with movie studios about this or that project, one clause is always in there. There can be no book created in association with the movie. Hmm. My novel is the only novel that can ever exist um, in connection with this film unless I write one myself, and I keep all the rights. So if I do write one myself that, that connects with the movie better, as in, for example, a picture book uh, or, or something, then I get to keep the money, <laughs> and uh, that, that works well for me. So nobody's going to be sitting up creating a 
novelization of the butchering screenplay uh, of Ender's Game. Ender's Game itself is the only novel. That's sort of a minimum, I think. Yeah, I heard you say that you sort of would view the film as like a trailer for the book. Yeah, yeah. I didn't remember saying that, but it's true. <laughs> and that was our interview. So thanks so much to Orson Scott Card for joining us on the show. Yeah, we, we want to give a special thanks to Orson Scott Card for being so generous with his time. Uh, we ended up recording lots and lots of uh, material for that interview. Um, actually, you know, more than we could really use on the show. And uh, But it's all good stuff. And so we decided that what we were going to do is, uh, you know, release uh, some bonus material. So uh, we have about 20 minutes of questions that we had to cut. And uh, we're just going to make that available on our website. So uh, if you haven't had enough Orson Scott Card interview, you can go to uh, geeksguideshow.com and go to the post uh, for this episode, episode 29. And we'll just have a link there to the MP3 file. And you can listen to, uh, to some other uh, extra material from that interview. And so now we're going to, speaking of Mither Mages and things like that, we're going to talk some more about wizards. And I mean, I've mentioned before on the show that, you know, when I was a kid, my favorite book series was Robert Asprin's Myth series, which is about uh, an apprentice wizard. And uh, in one of the books, uh, there's an, an author's introduction in which Robert Asprin kind of talks about how he got the idea for the series. He felt like this is this is in the 70s that the fantasy field had been growing increasingly solemn and grandiose, and he thought it was long overdue for some good lampooning, and uh, that since uh, fantasy was always full of brawny barbarian swordsmen hunting wizards, he thought he would uh, take the opposite tack and write his story from the point of view of a wizard, and uh, that just strikes me as really interesting, looking at it from the perspective of today, because today fantasy is full of stories about wizards. You know, you've got Harry Potter and, and all this stuff, you know, that's sort of almost the standard mode for a fantasy story is to tell it from the point of view of a wizard. Whereas I can't think of like the last time I read a story told from the point of view of a brawny barbarian swordsman. Yeah, that's interesting uh, that, that there has been that shift, you know. Um, I, I mean, for a while there, sword and sorcery really was the pinnacle of, of, of the fantasy genre. And then sort of epic fantasy sort of started to take over, which is, you know, s uh, sort of a slight distinction in some people's eyes. But, um, you know, the epic fantasy focuses more on the, you know, the grand or epic scale of it, um, as the name implies, whereas sword and sorcery tend to focus on, you know, um, the sort of a uh, lot of fighting, a lot of action, you know, and so... Um, uh, you know, the sort of barbarian type characters, you know, the sort of Conan the Barbarian type character uh, was, was much more prevalent in those stories. And I, I think it's harder to to have a barbarian type of character as your focal point when you, if you're trying to tell this big, sprawling, epic uh, tale. You know, I, I mean, that might be part of it. And, and I mean, everything since Harry Potter came out has certainly been, is largely influenced by the fact that Harry Potter was so popular and, uh, and everyone realized that, hey, people like reading about wizards. And so I'm I'm going to tell my story about a wizard. Um, and I mean, it's not like Harry Potter was the first to do that. Um, and not even the first to do wizards in school. I mean, um, are you familiar with the Diane Duane series? Um, so you want to be a wizard? Uh, I, I have heard of it, but I haven't read them. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, those have been, those have been around, you know, uh, for at least a several years before Harry Potter. I'm not sure how, how many years before off the top of my head, but, um, you know, my niece was a huge fan of those. And, uh, actually I have kind of a funny story about that. Um, 
you know, uh, for my niece's birthday one year, I wanted to get her something nice. And so uh, she was really big on the So You Want to Be a Wizard books at the time. And um, so I was like, oh, well, maybe I can just get Diane Duane to sign like a copy of the first book for her. Um, well, it turns out Diane Duane lives like in Ireland. And so uh, that made it a little bit more complicated. But, you know, I got in touch with her via email and she said, oh, sure, that would be fine. And uh, I have copies here. You can just pay me for that and uh, I'll send it to you. I said, like, oh, great, great. And uh, but she's like, well, actually, you know, instead of just paying me for it, could uh, could you actually could we trade a copy of the book signed for some Malto meal? And I'm like, um, OK, um, apparently where she lives in Ireland, she can't get the Malto meal she likes. What What is that Malto meal? Yeah, it's like some kind of oatmeal type of thing. Huh. But I mean, yeah, like like the barbarian thing is just, you know, disappeared like. Have there been any barbarian anthologies? Like, not that I can think of, but right, whereas right. there have been a bunch of wizard anthologies, right, recently. Um, and I mean, you edited a, a wizard anthology, um, but like, what were some of the other ones that, that have come out uh, in the last couple of years? Well, Jack Dan and Gardner Dozois had one called Wizards um, that came out from Berkeley. Um, and, you know, that was an all original book. It had a bunch of, uh, you know, top fantasy writers in there. I don't know. I, actually, that's the only one that actually immediately comes to mind for me. I mean, did you have others in mind? I don't know. Didn't you read a bunch of them, like to pick out stories for uh, for Way of the Wizard? Like, wasn't there like um, the, the Orson Scott Card story? Didn't that come from like a like Magic Inc. or something anthology? Oh right, yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's there, there was a Daw anthology called Wizards Inc. I, I believe is, is the title. Uh, I mean, those are actually the only two I really that really come to mind, though. Um, you know, and uh, and then for Way of the Wizard, I mean, it was uh, you know it was about half reprints and half originals. I um, I didn't actually end up reading a lot of stories in in other Wizard anthologies. Uh, I mean, just I uh, I found the stories just uh, like elsewhere because you know Wizard stories appear everywhere. You know, any kind of fantasy anthology is prone to have a Wizard story, or or, or the magazines that publish fantasy are you know pretty likely to have a Wizard story here or there. So yeah, I mean, I, I sort of found them all over the place. I mean, you also, you set up sort of this database, right, where people could recommend um, right. stories. When did, did, did you like come up with that idea or were other people doing that before you? Like, where did that come from? Um, I think that, I think I came up with that on my own. I don't, I don't remember if I got it from somewhere else, but I mean, um, I, I don't remember anyone else doing it for anthology specifically, but, um, you know, I first did that with, when I did my Living Dead anthology, um, be, just because I wanted to solicit recommendations from people and I wanted to, uh, you know, because like people who read science fiction and fantasy i mean like they tend to have like favorites that just stick in their head and they remember it forever you know and and they like to you know they like to share those recommendations with friends and and other people who like the same stuff that they like and so i just figured um you know i could do that and i can uh, sort of reach out and use the power of the internet to help me um find stuff that i might not find otherwise and it also just cuts down a lot of uh, a lot on my research time i mean because i do a lot of research when i assemble all these anthologies um because um, I mean, not as much for something like Way of the Wizard, where it's like half originals and half reprints, but like something that's all reprints where like, f for instance, for Brave New Worlds, um, the dystopian anthology that I, I just did, um, you know, that book is supposed to be specifically like, you know, the best dystopian stories of all time, right? So for that, like I had to do so much more research because, you know, I really want to survey the entire field as, as, as much as is possible um, so that I can honestly say that, yes, I, I've surveyed the field and I think that, you know, these, you know, 30, 40 stories, whatever, you know, these are these are what I, I think uh, are the best. It's kind of funny, like sometimes when you do these reprint anthologies and then, you know, like and the book will say like this book collects the best zombie stories of the last 30 years or whatever. And then people will write angry reviews saying like 
Like the Stephen King story in this book is 20 years old. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, reading comprehension isn't, uh, isn't always the best with some readers, you know. I mean, uh, um, but I hope they paid more attention when they're reading the stories than they did when they're reading, reading the cover copy. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a little annoying when that happens. But, you know, whatever. But I, I was going to say, like, with, with Way of the Wizard, um, you know, that was uh, – it was an open anthology, right? So mm-hmm. – and it seems like most, most anthologies, you know, are sort of invite-only or, you know – but Way of the Wizard was one where sort of anybody, you know, could send a story and you would take a look at it. Yeah. I mean, how many stories did you end up uh, looking at? How many, like, wizard stories did you end up looking yeah. at for that? Uh, <laughs> uh, way too many. Um, there was over a thousand submissions for it, which is, you know, which is great from an editor's point of view in the sense that, you know, you really want to have a lot to choose from. But it also, it's kind of bad because you're like, well, I got a thousand submissions and I'm going to use you know, like 30 something stories total in the book and which half of them are going to be reprints. So I think there's like 16 originals in the book. So basically, you know, a thousand stories got submitted, but 16 ended up in the book, you know? So it's like, that's, that's rough. (laughs) That's rough odds. And it's obviously, it's like way, way, way too many submissions to really, you know, um, that's the reason why a lot of anthologies are, are, you know, invite only. Because it's like, well, I don't need a thousand stories to pick from, you know, to get to put this book together. But, you know, I wanted to I wanted to have it be open and have anybody submit stories. And I mean, I found some great stuff that I, I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily gotten if, if I hadn't done that. So like when you when you read like that many wizard stories all in a row, did you notice any like patterns that you would see over and over again or like things that are in the zeitgeist about wizards, stuff like that? Um. Well, I mean. I, I, the one thing that I, that would stick out in my mind is that a lot of people just haven't progressed past the idea of Gandalf as the archetype for a wizard. You know, just like, okay, yes, Gandalf was a wizard, but not every wizard has to be like Gandalf. Um, and you would think that with Harry Potter that there would have been more people saying, oh, well, you know, wizards don't have to be old men with beards and pointy hats, you know? And, I mean, if you look at the anthology, I mean, you'll, you'll see that what I was trying to do was sort of showcase how – um, how many how many different takes you can have on on the idea of a wizard? You know, I have a you know, there's very few stories in there that are actually that traditional sort of um, pointy-hatted, gray-bearded wizard character. So, like, what were some of the more like unusual takes on wizards that ended up making it into the book? Yeah. Uh, well, Nettie Okorfor um, has a, a great story called The Ghostlo, which is uh, you know, it takes place in Africa, and it's and then the protagonist is like this Nigerian. Um, you know, film star, uh, with the, you know, they call Nollywood, uh, Nigerian film industry. And he, and he has this like strange encounter with this, um, with this, uh, this like woman who's, uh, uh, some sort of shaman type of person. And she, you know, transforms into this, uh, bird. And it's, it's a, it's a very crazy story. I and mean, it's a very, very, uh, very different than everything else in the book and, and, and really quite brilliant. Um, and so I, I'm a big fan of that one. Actually, Tor.com is going to be reprinting that um, on on their website at some point in the near future. So you'll be able to read it for free. But you know, you can always buy the book too. Uh, but uh, a newer writer, uh, most people probably aren't familiar with, uh, Rajan Khanna. Um, he has a story called Card Sharp, uh, which I, I liked quite a lot. It's like it takes place in the in the American West, and uh, it's a it's a kind of riverboat, and and uh, and the protagonist uh, has this deck of cards, like a deck of regular playing cards, but um, the cards are all enchanted. And, uh, like, you know, he can only use each card once. And so it's like you get basically you get 54, you know, attempts to use magic, 54, including the two jokers. So, you know, 52 cards plus the two, two jokers. And so um, and, you know, so it's sort of 
uh, it's telling the story of his that he has he has like this revenge thing going on and uh, but then you also learn about how he got the cards and the old man who gave it to him and, and, and trained him how to use them and all that and uh, I thought the you know the use of magic was very inventive in that um, Jeremiah Tolbert has a story called One Click Banishment which um, you know sort of meshes technology and magic in the same story and so um, all magic is copyrighted and there's an organization called the MAA um, you know the Magical Association of Atlantis um, which uh, controls all the magic copyright and everything and so there's people who are like sort of hackers or whatever in the magical world and they um, uh, you know they, uh, they, they they trade magical spells online and all that kind of thing and so um, and actually this story came about because uh, or at least uh it was partially inspired by me saying I, I used the phrase one click banishment for something like it was something I was complaining about something on my computer. Like I, it's like, I, I want one click banishment. Like instead of having to click multiple times to make something go away or whatever. And so Jeremy, uh, you know, he's like, uh, he, he said something uh, about that when I said it and I was like, Oh, well you should, uh, you should write a story about that. And so he did. Yeah. Well, I, I thought um, we might want to mention the Charles Coleman Finley story. It's sure. kind of an unusual setting. This is in the, uh, it's sort of during the American Revolutionary War, and uh, there's a guy, the, the main character, one of his uh, ancestors was hanged uh, as part of the Salem Witch Trials for, for being a witch. And uh, so this this guy, you know, discovers that he sort of inherited this ancestral ability to do magic, and he has to use witchcraft to, you know, to help the American Revolution. Uh, Charles Coleman Finley, he did all, you know, he was working on a PhD in history focused on on this period, and so there's a lot of, like, good historical detail. And I guess he has a like a trilogy set in the same milieu. the The first book is called, I think, uh, "The Patriot Witch," mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's that's one of those that's on my my pile of uh, books to read. You know, maybe uh, if this podcast ever gets canceled, I'll uh, have time to read any of these, some of these books. But uh, I noticed that the third book in the series is called "The Demon Redcoat," mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a great title. That really makes me want to see uh, what happens uh, with that one. Yeah, I really like that series, and uh, the middle book actually has a good title, too. It's called A, a Spell for Revolution, I believe. Um, another story from the book I particularly wanted to call attention to was uh, this one by Marion Zimmer Bradley called Secret of the Blue Star. And this is actually one, and I think I entered it on the database, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the recommendations database. This is, you know, sort of a, an old favorite of mine. It appeared in the uh, first Thieves' World anthology, um, actually, that was edited by Robert Astrin, who I mentioned earlier. Um and I've just always really loved the the magic system in this story. It sort of posits that there's this order of wizards, and they all have kind of blue stars on their foreheads, and they're all um, gathering their power to to face evil at the uh, at the arm, sort of at Armageddon sort of thing. And so, uh, but a lot of the, these these wizards of the blue star they don't get along with each other. But there's this code that they can't kill each other because if they're if you're to kill another of them then there will be fewer of them to fight evil at the uh, at the end of the world um, but what you, what you can do is that each wizard in this order they uh, have a, they have a secret and um, the bigger your secret the more power you have and if you can find out the secret of another wizard then you get all of their power and they lose all their power and so these wizards are uh, constantly trying to learn each other's secrets like when you're doing like a wizard anthology or something like this, how much uh, do you have any sort of guidelines you use for deciding what's a wizard story and what's not? And were there any story, stories where you're like, oh, this is a good story, but I'm not sure if it's a wizard story or not? Like, how do you make that kind of yeah. determination? Yeah, um, you know, I didn't have anything written down, you know, but I mean, I just, I, I, it was just, I sort of went by feel, um, like, you know, just to me, if it felt like a wizard story or not. Um, there was one story that I really, really loved that um, I didn't think 
was a wizard story, really. And actually, it ended, it ended up in Fantasy Magazine. It's uh, called Stem, Stone, and Bone by Deb Tabor. Um, so we, we can have a link to the show notes and, uh, for that, too. But, um, you know, so Random Fantasy Magazine. This was before I actually – before I started editing Fantasy Magazine. So it was just, um, you know, it just happened to be, end up there. But, um, yeah, I mean, I loved the story. I mean, it was just beautifully written, and, uh, and I just really liked the narrative. But, um, yeah, I just didn't think it was a wizard story. I mean, uh, there may have been others that I also, uh, yeah, there was at least one other one. There was one that I read that, uh, um, I don't know if it got published anywhere else, but, so I won't say what it is or the author, but I mean, it was basically, it, it seemed to me like it was more of an angel story and it really wasn't a wizard story. So, um, so I felt like it wasn't appropriate for the book, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard, uh, when you're doing a book like this to, you know, you want to showcase the diversity of the theme, but on the other hand, you want to make sure that the stories actually do fit the theme well enough that, you know, people aren't going to be saying, hey, what's what's this non-wizard story doing in this wizard anthology? <laughs> I mean, I certainly had that problem with The Living Dead, um, you know, with people saying, that, oh, these aren't zombie stories or whatever. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I try to keep that in mind that, you know, um, when people buy a book about wizards, you know, they want all the stories to be about wizards. They don't want them to be like, oh, it's well, it's kind of sort of a wizard story. You know, if you look at it in the right light, you know, um, they want it to be a wizard story. You know, I, I try to navigate by feel and, uh, you know, if I'm not sure, I'll, I'll, you know, ask some other people to read it and, and give me their feedback and, you know, let me know what they think. Like, does, does this feel like a wizard, like it's wizard enough or, you know, whatever. Well, and of course, one of the one of the most interesting stories in the book, I thought, was uh, your own story, Dave. Yeah. Do you want to tell the people about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, this is a story I'm really pleased with the way it turned out. Uh, it's called Family Tree. And um, yeah, so sort of what happened was I was... Uh, over at my grandmother's house helping her out and you know she's big into genealogy and she's always uh she has a program called family tree maker that she uh, uses on her computer to you know and she's always entering entering in photographs and uh you know names and dates and stuff like that and so uh so i was just kind of wandering around the house and i happened to look at the box for that and i just saw family tree and it just sort of gave me this idea for you know like a family and they would actually live in a literal tree and that the uh the tree would grow new branches each time a new member of the family was born, you know, for that person to live in. And uh, so I was thinking about that for a while. And I was originally, I was imagining it as sort of more of like a surreal kind of story. Um, and then, you know, uh, John mentioned that he was uh, working on this wizard anthology and, uh, you know, encouraged me to, uh, to submit something for that. And so, uh, so, so I had this idea about this family living in this big tree. And I was like, ah, is there any way that this could be a wizard story? And then sort of the more I thought about it and, kind of played around with the idea, the more and more it seemed like, oh, it had to be a wizard story, um, that that was really the only way it was going to work. And so, uh, so what I eventually came up with was kind of this, uh, this story where there's these, uh, this, this, you know, powerful wizard and he created this tree for his descendants to live in and he, his ghost still sort of inhabits the tree. And so he still kind of has this unhealthy domination over his uh, descendants and the two, uh, sides of the family have, uh, developed this rivalry you know, to see who can have the most uh, heirs, because, you know, the more heirs you have, the bigger your half of the tree grows. And uh, and so the main character is, you know, sort of a young wizard, and uh, he's really put off by this whole business. And so he's gone off on his own and created his own tree for him, him to live in. He sort of washed his hands of his, his family, his, his family and their rivalries and scheming and stuff. Um, but as the story opens, he kind of gets drawn back into the, uh, the politicking and backstabbing and stuff. And, uh, you know, Scott was talking uh, in the interview about how important fantasy art is to him and, uh, you know, how every um, story in Intergalactic Medicine show, how it's really important to him that it has an illustration. And I feel the same way. You know, I was always 
I've always been really big on drawing and doodling and uh it's it's really a thrill for me to uh to have you know professional artists do uh, to do illustrations for my stories and it's one of the reasons i was always uh really uh excited to submit stories to realms of fantasy magazine because they uh they do full color uh illustrations for most of the stories that they run um but so so i wrote this uh this story family tree and i, I just really really wanted an illustration showing the tree with all its windows and balconies and you know, the, the families uh, facing off against each other and stuff. And uh, so there's actually an artist uh, who had uh, expressed an interest in uh, in doing some work for Realms of Fantasy magazine. And so I contacted him, and he's sort of an up-and-coming comic book artist. And so I, I contacted him and commissioned him to do, to do an illustration for the story, uh, showing the tree and everything. And he did just a fantastic job. I'm really, really happy with this, this illustration. So uh, I, I strongly encourage people to go check it out. It's up on my website. Yeah, actually, the story is up on the on the website for the anthology. If, if you just go to if, if you go to my website, johnjosephadams.com, there's a there's a link to the um to the anthology's website there, and uh, we'll have it in the show notes here. Um, but uh, there's there's about uh, I don't know, there's about eight different stories that are up online for free. You know, including Dave's and and some of their other ones in the book. In the interview too, you know, Scott was uh, you know saying that uh, he's not a fan of uh, Frank Frazetta style art. But, you know, a lot of people are. And uh, there was this great documentary I watched recently um, called Frazetta Painting with Fire. And uh, I definitely recommend people check that out. I mean, even if you're not a fan of Frazetta's artwork, his, uh, it's just a really interesting documentary. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, it's, it's a really, really uh, enthusiastic uh, documentary. I mean, sort of the, uh, the, the perspective of the documentary is like, you know, Michelangelo was okay. But then Frazetta came along to show him how it's really done, you know. But, uh, yeah. I mean, one thing that I was kind of, I've kind of been thinking about is, you know, when I was thinking about sort of the barbarian swordsmen versus the wizards and, and stuff like that, is there was this thing I was just reading recently. It was on uh, sort of about role-playing games. And it was sort of saying how, you know, pretty much every role-playing game, you've got your fighter, your magic user, and your thief character classes. You know, like you can't think of a, a role-playing game that, has character classes and doesn't have uh, basically those three. And and this article was sort of saying that, you know, it's not just the failure of imagination that, that every game has those basic choices, but that's just sort of the, the nature of things, that there's usually three basic solutions to any problem, right? There's like a brute force approach, the intellectual approach, and the kind of street smarts cunning approach. And those three character classes sort of embody those three approaches. And... Uh, so any other uh, character class that you come up with is either some variation on those or some combination of those. And, and so I've, you know, I've just sort of been thinking about that the last couple of days and just sort of, is that true? Is there, does every character need to be located along those axes or is there some other uh, axis that isn't uh, being taken into account there? And the other thing that kind of came to mind is that, you know, in, in Dungeons and Dragons, one of the uh, attributes is charisma and you know, this is sort of, you can sort of imagine like a politician character or a sort of seductress character. And I've, I've been trying to decide whether that falls into the rogue sort of sneaky cunning category or not. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, charisma is uh, largely useless in D&D, or at least it was. Uh, I, I gather in fourth edition, it's uh, it's more important than it ever has been before. I mean, charisma, it's like one of those game aspects that should be really cool, but almost always gets ignored just because it's so hard to it's so subjective you know 
Mm-hmm. You're like, if, if I do this much damage when I hit somebody, that's really easy to, to calculate and everyone, everyone can kind of agree on it. But, you know, like if you're trying to use your charisma and charm somebody, there's so much mm-hmm. subjectivity in terms of, you know, well, I say this, that's charming. And people are like, that's not charming. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's sort of difficult to mediate in a, in a game context. Right. Um, Actually, you know, what I thought was curious is that, you know, in, in fourth edition, they have a, a race called Dragonborn, which are sort of like dragon men. And uh, and that their bonuses are like they get plus two to strength, which makes sense. But then also plus two to charisma. <laughs> like, really? They're uh, they're really charming, horrifying dragon men. Yeah, no, that's very strange. Like, right? hold, hold still, old chap, while <laughs> I blow my fire on your face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just kind of funny, you know, in terms of uh, like wizards in games, because there are all these sort of like conventions there's, there's sort of this interesting issue of like how much does the game in, influence the fiction and how much does, does the fiction influence the game because you know like like wizards in Dungeons and Dragons aren't allowed allowed to use swords or, or armor and stuff like that um, and so I think that that's really influenced people's you know image of, of what wizards are and when you read a lot of fantasy you just see wizards have their staffs or whatever but then if you go back to Lord of the Rings you know Gandalf carries a sword and he fights with a sword most of the mm-hmm. time. But you, yeah, I always thought that I always thought that was a strange limitation, given the fact that yes, Gandalf <laughs> carries a sword. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it was more about balance, trying to balancing the classes. You know, it's like uh, they 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 wanted to make the wizard have you know have no real martial skills to balance out the fact that he can cast all these amazing spells and whatnot. Although it's funny, you know, uh, I guess one of the the changes in fourth edition is uh, is that like a first level character is no longer as as, as much of a frail little flower as they used to be. Uh, it's like, for instance, uh, you know, my new DM was saying, you know, in in like second edition or whatever uh, previous editions, you know, uh, a first level wizard could like get killed by a child with a rock. <laughs> well, so. well, no, and that's like one of the ways that that the rules were just really broken in in second mm-hmm. edition was that yeah. you know a wizard. You know, you have a wizard character, and he's completely useless until he gets up to, like, level 8 or something. And then he's, like, a thousand times more powerful than all the other characters put together as he starts going up from there, you know? Yeah. And so I understand that they've made changes to to make it a little bit more balanced. Um, I think another thing I've heard that they changed is that, you know, when, when, when I used to play 2nd Edition, the magic system had been inspired by Jack Vance's uh, Dying Earth, you know, where yeah. the, the wizards, you know, they have to memorize spells and then... You spend hours memorizing a spell, and then as soon as you cast it, it's erased from your mind, and you have to start all over and memorize it again. Mm-hmm. And that's a really great magic system for a book, but it really doesn't work that well for a game because yeah, cause like, you, you know because you have to have you have to like think about what spells you want to have at the beginning of the day, and then like you know if you get into an encounter when you really need that one spell that you have but you didn't memorize, <laughs> like well, tough. Yeah, yeah, and that like you know. You could theoretically, there were all of these interesting spells that you could do, you know, like levitation or transmute stone to mud or whatever, or, you know, op- you know, spells to open locked doors, things like that. But you would never actually have them because when it came time to memorize your spells, you wanted to do the, the safest, most prudent thing, which was to load up on combat spells because those were the mm-hmm. ones you were sure you were going to need. Right. Yeah, like imagine you're, you're like third level wizard or something who has like access to first and second level spells, you know, and it's like, oh, well, you know, I still can't kill anything because I hardly have any hit points and all I can use is a quarterstaff or a dagger, but I can cast like open lock. That, that will help the party out. And that'll be a lot of fun to play this character because in, in combat, I'll just like stay in the corner or, and or, you know, be passed out on the ground bleeding to death. See, do you have any other like, um, you know, you, like the way of the wizard was this open anthology that anyone could submit to. Do you have anything else like that like coming up in the future? 
Uh, well, you know, Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazines, they're both always open to submissions and, 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 and you know, they're, you know, not invite only or anything. They're, anyone can submit stories to those. So I'm always doing those. And um, I guess that's it for now. I mean, I, um, you know, it's uh, unlikely that um, Armored, uh, which, uh, you know, I and I just uh, sort of announced the other day, you know, which is an anthology all about powered armor and mecha and that kind of thing. Um, th- that's probably not going to be open just because I, I have a very limited amount of space and I already have like a ton of authors who are interested. And, and actually after the IO9 article came out, like I got a bunch of other, um, you know, authors who I'm familiar with their work and who just like emailed me. It's like, Oh my God, you gotta let me write something for that. Um, so, you know, I, I'm going to have way more material probably than I could possibly use. So, um, but yeah, I mean, in the meantime, you know, Lightspeed and Fantasy are always open. So, um, if anybody wants to submit something, then that's the way to do it. And since now I'm doing both fantasy, which publishes fantasy, and Lightspeed, which publishes science fiction, it's like, you know, basically anything you want to write genre-wise, you can submit to me. And that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Let's see. So uh, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is up to 25 ratings on iTunes. So thanks to everyone who's rated it so far. Uh, Can we get up to 26? We'd really like to. Maybe you listening right now can be the one to put us over the top and get us up to 26. And, of course, go and check out the uh, bonus material from our Orson Scott Card interview over at geeksguideshow.com. And, uh, as always, we're accepting donations. Uh, so if you want to help us out, that would be great. And uh, we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.